If you have a a Bible with you this morning, please open it to the 10th chapter of Romans. We'll be finishing that chapter this morning and reading it in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible with you, please borrow one from the pocket of the pew in front of you. And uh, Romans 10, beginning in verse 14, will be somewhere around page 889 of that Bible. We find ourselves in a unique place in history. For most of history, individual lives were practically the same. It didn't matter if you lived in the northernmost parts of Finland or if you were directly on the equator, the, the equator, whether it's in Africa or in South America, your life was pretty much the same. You got up in the morning, you worked to try and eat, and then you went to bed. And that was pretty much what you had. The news that you would get was the news of what happened in your small community of people. That would be about it. But because of the rise of technology, we truly experience things in a completely different way. We get real-time updates on a war that is going on all the way across the world. We get those. We get to see the devastation and the, the difficulties that it is causing in that area of the world. We have commercials during the Super Bowl because companies know that millions of people will be watching that one event. They're willing to pay millions of dollars for 30 seconds worth of airtime so that we will hear yet again about a company that we've known about for decades. Like, no one heard about Pepsi for the first time on Super Bowl Sunday if they thought that they could spend millions of dollars to get us to like Pepsi more than Coke, which is a joke. It's easy to spread information now. It's, it's easy to disseminate it. It's done with a click of a button and the upload of a video. And yet, the apex of history is not the war in Ukraine, not even the past two world wars, nor is it the Super Bowl. It's true that if the Lions ever get to the Super Bowl, it might be the end of the world. I think it's forecasted in Revelation. But it's not the apex of history, at the very least. The apex of history, the event to which all other events either gravitate or radiate out from, is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those three days, Good Friday, Dark Saturday, Resurrection Sunday. All other events in history reflect upon that particular event. We are told the fate of all peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation rest upon their understanding of those events. Trusting in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to reconcile them to the one true and living God comes from knowing that it was Jesus Christ, that it was Jesus Christ, the Jew of Nazareth, who died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, that, trusting in that event for your salvation, is what your fate rests on, what the fate of all peoples rests on. Scripture says, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, and Jesus alone is the way and the truth and the life. Knowing that that is the apex of history and knowing that that needs to go out and that information needs to be heard and believed, certainly the almighty, omnipotent God has a really clever mechanism for getting the word out. Some sort of huge sign in the sky, a way to decipher the planets or the stars to understand what is going on. Maybe it's it's the fact that we know God has elected people that somewhere along the lines when they're 13 or 14, God just kind of zaps the information into their brains by the work of the Spirit. Or maybe the Spirit just comes in and sort of speaks to them internally in their own. I mean, if Pepsi can reach millions of people in 30 seconds, certainly God can. But God, in His infinite wisdom, did none of those things. 
Rather, the report of all the work of Jesus, the response that it calls for, would go out to the world by word of mouth. Slow and steady, one man, one woman going to another and speaking of the work of Jesus Christ. Why? Why was this the way that God wanted Jesus to be known? And even saying that was is incorrect. It's not as though that has now passed, that we have these other sort of technologies that we can use. God is, is not going to hand over the evangelization, evangelization of the world to a 30-second commercial and think that we can be done. We can't simply hold up signs at the Super Bowl that read John 3.16 and think we are doing what we are supposed to do, or even dropping, dropping tracks on people from blimps, uploading YouTube videos, whatever the case might be. God has shown us how the Spirit will use us. People will believe when they hear. They will hear from preaching, and we will preach when we are sent. What was true in Paul's day is no less true today. Let us hear how the plan of God will go forward today from God's Word, not with flashy signs in the sky, not with automated pop-up ads, not with the miraculous intervention of the Spirit through the solitude of people simply praying, but with the age-old manner of talking to people. Let us read the Word of God, beginning in Romans 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Well, indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of our God. Let us first stress the importance of missions. Let's stress the importance of missions. Salvation will go out, and it will only go out as the people of God go out. Paul points here to a chain of sort of necessary actions to see people come to salvation. He reminds us first that they must call on Jesus. As we left last time, it was necessary for people to call on the name of the Lord. That name of the Lord is none other than Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, you might say the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh or Jehovah or however you might want to pronounce it. But now we know that that name is nothing other than the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory, who died in your place carrying your sin and your death so that he might freely give you salvation. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that to call on this name is nothing else but to believe in him. This calling on Jesus, naming him, confessing him as Lord and Savior, must entail a real, true trust and belief in him. You are truly calling on Jesus to help. 
James 1, 5 and 8 puts it this way. When talking about how we should ask for help from God, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I think at least part of what James is getting at there and what Paul is getting at when he says you must believe is that you're not just trying names out, casting a net as wide as possible, hoping that someone comes to help. You're not just screaming out for help in a general way. You're not saying, hey, I, I kind of hope Jesus will help me, but if not, there's, there's Muhammad, maybe I'll call upon him and Allah for some for mercy, and maybe I'll, I'll try a little eight-way path with Buddha and see if he can't straighten me out, and, and maybe even try a little bit of Freud on for size to see if maybe that will help me get over my anguish and soul or whatever the case might be. You can't just try him on as one of many. The idea here is that you get a call from prison. You get a call from the execution chamber. You get one call. You get to call on one person. You get to call out on one name, one phone call to stay the execution, one phone call to release you from prison. Paul is saying you call on Jesus for that. You must believe that he and he alone can save you. But it's not that alone. How are you to call on someone whom you've never heard of? And and clearly, you can't call on Jesus if you don't know him. If you've never heard the name of Jesus, how are you ever to call on him? You must hear about him. But what's more, that hearing cannot just be some random knowledge that you gained from colloquial expressions or people simply using the name of Jesus blasphemously. When they, when they hit their toe and they say his name or when somebody has some trouble and they just repeat the name Jesus, 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 over and over and over again. It's not a magic code. It's not like you're going to get to heaven and God's going to slide open that little eye hole and say, yes, and you're going to say, Jesus. And he's going to say, that's the password, come on in. It's not, it's not a magic word, it's not a, a password that, that allows you to get into heaven, but there is a content with it. It's not a word, it is the word. It's not just magic, it is the very person of Jesus Christ. How can you call on it? If all you know is the sound, you must know something of his work, something of why you need to call out to him, something of his resume, of, of the work that he has done, some details about him that you can actually count on and trust in. What are you trusting in? A magic word won't do it. Trusting in the fact that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and has been resurrected to show his victory over them, that is what you are believing in when you trust in Jesus now, how are you to know that? Unless somebody has told you. Unless that word has been preached to you. How can you know of what he has done? Of how it can help you? And how you can have assurance and, and the ability even to call up upon his name unless somebody has come to you and told you about this Jesus? And how can he be preached unless people are sent out into the world to preach the word of God? 
How can he be preached unless somebody is sent out in the world with words on their lips to speak of the good word of Jesus Christ, to speak of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, to speak of the fact that God has enclosed himself and has loved the world so much that he gave his only son that you can have forgiveness in him. All these things must be true. They must be sent. They must preach. They must be heard. They must believe. And they must call out. Paul ends this with a quote from Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I I have to tell you, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever seen the feet of the person who led me to Christ. And frankly, it seems like such an odd thing for him to say. Feet are probably the inherently least beautiful part of any person, right? And especially in the first century, they were without the comfort of our shoes, without the absorbency of our socks. They were dirty and smelly and gross, and I think that that's part of Isaiah's idea, that those gross feet are the very things that brought the person who was to proclaim the good news to you. And such good news it was that even their feet are beautiful because it has brought you the best of things. This is why missions are so important. We cannot rely on simply uploading videos on YouTube or writing messages in the sky. We must meet people. There's something necessary in the plan of God in having a human connection from one person to another person in sharing the gospel. Ask yourself, how will people know that they can truly trust Jesus? How will they know that he can deliver on his promises? Now, you might, again, rely upon the fact that it is the Spirit of God doing this. Amen. Hallelujah. It is the Spirit who convicts and changes hearts. You can't do a lick of that. But you are never to think of the sovereignty of God in salvation as something that acts against the normal human means of conversion. Human beings actually do care who is sharing with them. Yes, you don't need to know the person, and you can share the gospel, and they can be changed. But I would say to you that that is an unusual work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God convicts most often through people who know other people. People who have a relationship. How will they know that they can trust Jesus? Because they can see it in you. How will they know that he can deliver on his promises? Because they see it in you. Are we not the handiwork of Jesus? Are we not the collection of people that Jesus has worked on and changed for his own good purposes? People believe because the Spirit of God works in them, but the Spirit of God almost always chooses to work from one person to the next. This is the work that has been given to us, to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us, tell others about this precious and this good news, and to aid those who do so in places that we cannot get to. Let us declare the good news because missions are incredibly important. The mission of God is incredibly important because without hearing, there is no salvation. Second, Let's think as we come to these verses about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. One might wrongly leave these verses with sort of the wrong impression. You might leave thinking that 
this is a passage that sounds a lot like Romans 8.30. In Romans 8.30, we, we read these words. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And the whole idea behind that sort of golden chain is that once you start pulling on one part of it, the other parts have to come along with it. That you, you can't sort of be called by God and not end up glorified by God. And so if you are called by God, you are predestined by God, God is going to grant you justification and ultimately bring you to glory. Once you start the chain, you need to arrive at the end. And you can believe in reading these that what we need to do is simply go to all the ends of the earth, look at them, proclaim Jesus Christ, and then they will hear and believe and go about their way. But Paul seems to want to interject here and say that that's not the case. In verse 16 he says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. It seems like that might be what Paul's setting up. He says that that's not the case. They have not all believed the gospel. Many have heard the fullness of the gospel. They've heard it well. They've heard it multiple times by people who have pleaded with them, who in winsome obedience to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ have taken the gospel to them and pleaded with them in prayer and in tears to know the truth of the gospel. And they have roundly rejected it. We can read these verses, especially coming off of the earlier verses in chapter 10, and think that Paul is just sort of widening the net here to talk about all people coming to know the Lord and even hear the rejection. But the Jews have never actually fallen out of sort of the center of Paul's vision here. So the Jewish issues of their rejection of the gospel have been brought up in the beginning of chapter 9, and they continue throughout chapter 10 and out through chapter 11. It's true that many Gentiles reject the gospel. They hear the gospel, and they don't trust in it. They don't believe in it. And Paul is quite clearly talking about the Jews as well. When he is saying that not all have obeyed, he is reminding people that the gospel has been roundly rejected by the Jewish people. This is a real possibility. You go out, preach the gospel, you will find that not everyone will believe. There will be those no matter how good of an effort you put through, no matter how beautifully you speak of Jesus Christ, no matter how truly you present the gospel, they will not be moved by it. They will reject it. Paul knows that this is a possibility because he finds it in Scripture. He quotes Isaiah. And notice how, how negatively this sounds. It, it, there's a difference between saying, not everyone believes, Right? Isaiah doesn't go before the Lord and say, but, but Lord, not everyone has believed my message. That's one way of putting it. But Isaiah puts it in an incredibly negative light. He says, who has actually believed us? Name me one. It's almost like he's challenging God. Who has believed our report? Who has believed what he has heard from us? The passage in Isaiah is very interesting because it comes smack dab in the middle of one of the greatest suffering servant passages that Isaiah has and probably the passage that is most known as a prophetic picture of the work that Jesus Christ was coming to do. Isaiah has reported of the suffering servant and he turns to God and he says, but God, who has believed this? He is prophesying about the very coming of the Messiah, the very one who will come to save the Jews. And he looks around and he says, but no one's listening to me. No one believes me. 
suffering servant who is despised and rejected, who carries our sorrows and our grief, who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity, who by his wounds heals us. And even as Isaiah tells his people that this will come true, no one's buying it. For Paul, he says, it's no different now. Even though the fullness of these things is past, even though Jesus fulfilled all of these things, both in his life and his death, even though the evident presence of God was with him, even though his goodness and excellence was clear to all, and although this prophecy fits so well, his life and his death, and then his life again, who has believed it? This is not a matter of personal affection. Notice the incredible, important word that Paul uses there. He says, obey, for they have not all obeyed the gospel. They didn't obey the gospel. We, we almost always think of the gospel as an offer, right? One beggar telling another beggar where to get food. It's true. It is indeed that. You've heard offers that are too good to believe, right? There's the guy who never exercises, never changes his diet, but he lost 100 pounds in two weeks because he took this pill, right? For those of you who have AOL accounts, that Nigerian prince is still emailing you, right? Asking for $15,000 so that in a couple of weeks he can give you back $5 million. And you read that and you're like, that's a, that's a pretty good deal. It's a good return on investment. But listen, the offer that the gospel makes is better than that. You get everything. You get all of creation made new and wonderful again. You get all of it because all of it is Christ's and Christ is yours. And you invest nothing. You don't have a, a pledge. You don't have a down payment. You don't give a signature. You don't have a promise. It's just given to you who believe in Jesus Christ. But it is not just an offer. The gospel is nothing less than a command. The gospel says repent and believe. Part of the issue is we just don't don't see commands as good things. We know how authority works in our lives. We especially know how authority works in the world. And commands aren't given for the good who are commanded. When people command you to do stuff, it's not for your good that they command you. They command you for their own purposes. This is how it works for my kids and me. Right? In my worst moments, they are minions that God has given me to do my bidding. Not all of it evil, mind you, but at least some of my bidding. In my worst moments, I'm just being lazy And I'm having them pick up the living room, not because it builds character, but because the living room's a mess and I don't want to deal with it. At my best moments, though, when Bree and I ask for our kids to do something, it is to build their character. It is for their good. This is not how it sometimes works with God. It is how it always works with God. We ought not be embarrassed that the gospel is a command because the command is coming from an all-good, all-gracious God who can never command anything that is for our ill, who will never command anything that is for our evil, that will never command anything for us except which will give us the utmost good in the end. God 
is perfectly good in all of his ways, and his commands are always for our good. So the the gospel is not simply an offer of salvation. It is a command that goes out to the world. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ is a command from God to repent and believe. Third, let's think through this presence of prophecy. Paul ends the text before us by reminding us and the Romans that the rejection of the gospel by the Jews was not something that Paul really truly needed to explain. He seems to set it up that way. If we go back to the beginning, all the way back to chapter 9, it seems like this is sort of a roadblock in the gospel. And what Paul has been talking about seems to not have been carried through. And so he's got to explain this difficulty with the Jewish people. The Jewish people have not signed on to this gospel. Of all people who should have signed on to it, the Jews should have, and they didn't. And so Paul begins to explain, well, you see, it was, it was God's sovereign choice. And, and if they called on the name of the Lord, they could be saved, but they haven't. But, but here he explains it somewhat differently. His explanation is, we always knew this was going to happen. The first question he asks is, have they not heard? Was it, in, in this great chain of events that's happening, was the real problem the fact that the Jews just didn't, they didn't get the gospel. We just skipped too quickly over the Jewish part, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We just kind of went, well, Gentile. We're just going to skip over step one and go straight to step two. Like you're reading an instruction manual and you decide that you don't need to worry about the safety parts of that grill. It's just going to light up however it wants. Paul says, no, that, that's not the case. Have they not heard? He says, indeed they have, for, and he quotes Psalm 19.4. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. The use of Psalm 19.4 is, at best, a little odd here. Because if you go back to Psalm 19, while Psalm 19 does talk about special revelation of God's law to his people, it begins by talking about general revelation of the world to all people everywhere. And so, this particular style of revelation means it doesn't matter where you are. You could be in Papua New Guinea you can be in sub-Saharan Africa, or you could be a Jew in the Middle East. When you looked up to the sky, the sky presented you with the exact same information. It was the handiwork of God. But we know from Paul that that sort of general explanation of God, the general understanding of God from creation, was enough to show us that that God existed, but wasn't nearly enough to give us salvation. Why would Paul quote this? I think it's important, and I think it seems to be that they should have known about Jesus because, not because they saw the stars speak about Jesus, but what he means, I think, is pretty much straightforward. Just as the stars and the moon and creation are available to all people. So it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how poor you are. It doesn't matter if you're in Northern Europe or if you're in the West Coast of America. Those stars speak the same thing to you. And now the gospel goes out in the same manner to all people. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, the gospel comes to you. Now, at some level, this is clearly an exaggeration. When he says, their voice has gone out to all the earth. Paul doesn't mean that our job is hereby done. 
And we can tell our international missionaries to come home because we just never actually got to reading Romans 10. If we had finished Romans 10, we would have known we didn't have to send you guys out. Sorry about that. You can come back and you can just enjoy apple pie and baseball. But that's not what Paul means. After all, Paul is writing this letter to try and elicit help and support so that he can go to Spain and name Christ where Christ has not been named. What he means is simply this. The word of the gospel has gone out to all kinds, to barbarians, to Greeks, to Romans, to Jews, to women, to men, to free, to slave. All have heard the same gospel. It is now for each and all the same. The Jews heard this, and for the most part, they rejected it. But again, Paul is interested in showing us that all of this is not some sort of oversight in God's plan. That God didn't set this up, and then the Jews not respond favorably to it. And because he didn't respond favorably to it, God is kind of quickly working to patch this thing together. No. Paul does exactly what the Old Testament says he should do. He brings forward two witnesses to say, this is not something unheard of. This is all part of God's plan, and we know it, for there are two men who are going to witness to this. The first is Moses. He quotes Deuteronomy 32, 21. Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. He predicts that Israel was to be provoked by the very word of God to jealousy. That this work of opening up God's people to the Gentiles was going to provoke them to jealousy and to anger. And no doubt the second part of that has indeed come true. The work of Paul, the missionary, to take the gospel to the Gentiles free of the law angers the Jews. Not just the Jews who stand against the gospel, but even many of those who accepted the gospel. Paul's going to return to this idea of making them jealous in chapter 11. But before he does, he moves on to the book of Isaiah. And here he quotes Isaiah 1 and 2 from the 61st or 65th chapter, excuse me. There is another interesting thing that Paul is doing in these verses. If you were to go to Isaiah 65 and read those two first verses, you would find that what he says in verse 20, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And what he says in verse 21, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. If you were to go to Isaiah 65, those seem like they're said of the exact same people because they occur back to back. But Paul seems here to say that they are actually applied to two different people. That those who seek or those who didn't seek God but were found by God or who found God were the Gentiles. But all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people was actually about Israel. So again, you have to say, kind of what's, what's going on here? And I think the answer is fairly straightforward again. If you read Isaiah 65, you're able to say, well, this must be about the Gentiles, right? I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. The Gentiles were indeed an obedient and, and contrary people. They were, or excuse me, a disobedient and contrary people. They, they didn't follow the law of God. They didn't follow the things of God. 
It doesn't matter if they were Gentiles who had never heard of the Jewish people or if they lived directly alongside of them. Generally speaking, the Gentiles did not care about this Jewish God. They did not follow him. They did not seek him out. God is saying, those people, they didn't seek me, but they found me. But he could be saying the exact reverse as well. Israel is no less a disobedient and contrary people. In other words, Israel is no different than all the nations. Israel, simply by virtue of being elected and under the banner of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are not somehow inherently better morally or theologically than everybody else. They don't get a pass simply because of who their dads might have been and how much God had promised to them. They themselves were disobedient and contrary continually before God. They are just as disobedient, just as sinful, and just as wrong before God as the Gentiles are. So Paul says, I am found by those who didn't search for me. And yet I always hold out my hands to a disobedient people. And even if the Gentiles are the ones who have found me now, and you are the disobedient ones, what we're going to find in chapter 11 is that Paul is going to turn those tables and say, even the jealousy that God has provoked them to, he is going to bring them back with. Therefore, the gospel continues to go out to all people, regardless of who they are, whether Jews, whether Gentiles, whether rich, whether poor whether free or slave, whether they are of good, noble stock or they are of common stock like you and me. It doesn't matter the type of person. It doesn't matter if they are a woman or a man. The word of the Lord goes out to them, for it is only through the word of the Lord that they can be saved. The end of chapter 10 ought to give us a tremendous amount of comfort, especially this idea of prophecy and the sovereignty of God. 9 and 10 taken together, stand facing one another, not juxtaposed to one another, but certainly distinct in their emphases. Chapter 9 was harshly strong on the idea that God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whomever he wants to harden. That it is God's will, it is God's choice, that is what makes it grace, that is what makes it merciful, and that's what provides you salvation. Chapter 10 then looks at the human side of it and says, yeah, but you respond in faith. It is faith that saves you. It is the belief in the heart and the speaking of the tongue. But Paul wishes to comfort us by pointing us back again to the sovereignty of God and to his plan centered from before the world began on his own good choice in the work of Jesus Christ. So we should be comforted by this first in the fact that grace is real and true. That God's grace for sinners is actually true. That we should be bold to go out and proclaim it to people. That we should be bold enough to spend our lives working for that very thing, giving for that very thing. Living our lives, whether it just means frugally living our lives so that we can help others do this, or whether we ourselves are given over to it. That this is what it means for us. Because the grace of God is true, it needs to be proclaimed. When known and accepted, God fully forgives your sin in Jesus Christ. 
He has cast it as far as the east is from the west. Scripture puts us in, in impossible terms. But God who judges rightly forgives sinners. But the God who is the very foundation of justice himself pardons iniquity. That God who knows all things seems to forget our sin. That the God who is three times holy, even as we have sung this morning, takes our sin on himself. That God, who is truly the offended one here, has actually forgiven in full all of our debt. It is a gospel of utter and complete grace, given to an undeserving people, simply by the good pleasure of God. But while God's grace is true and real, and that ought to comfort us, God's plan is also sovereign and unstoppable. I know many people who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They truly believe in the gospel. But they're also wrapped up in this idea that they've got to believe enough. They've got to believe strongly. After all, you start to ask yourself, how, how much do I need to believe? How, how strongly do I need to believe? What if I, I'm wrong on this doctrine or that doctrine? What if I, I, I get most of it right, but some of it's wrong? What if it's a moment of weakness that I die in? What if it's a moment when I'm, I'm sinning that God takes my life from me? Am I found outside of the faith of Jesus Christ? What if I don't understand enough? What if I don't believe enough? Calm yourself, Christian. It is all in the sovereignty of God. Listen, the excellency of your faith, the, the brilliance of your faith, the center of your faith is not in the one who believes. The strength of your faith is not in you who believe. The excellency of it is in the one in whom you believe. It's not the strength of you. It is not the knowledge of who you are. It is not your ability to hang on to Jesus. It is his ability to hang on to you. It is a comfort that Paul is able to look at even the rejection of the Jews and say this is part of God's plan and what's more, because God is brilliant and gracious, this rejection of the Jews will ultimately, in chapter 11, rebound to their salvation as he will use their jealousy to bring them back to himself. No one is too far. There is no sin too deep. There is no person so twisted that the grace of God and Jesus Christ cannot save them. So we press forward. We can use technology. We can use advancements in, in getting information spread wide and far. <clears throat> but we don't need it. We simply need the spoken word. Perhaps aided by the things of the world, which we can use for the glory of God, nevertheless, it is by telling one another and telling the world that Jesus Christ has come and died for you, been resurrected for your own salvation. Trust yourself to him, for he is trustworthy and good. And by that, they will be saved. We press forward 
relying on the power of God in the presence of his people and the purpose of the gospel to reach the lost of the world. In the end, that is the mission of God. And therefore, it is ours as well. Let us pray. Father, give us the desire to spread the gospel to every tribe and tongue. Give us the courage to make this mission a priority and the wisdom to do it well. We know that the word has gone out and continues to, and yet there is much left to do. Strengthen your people that your word would be unhindered by our, unself, by our selfishness and sin so that we might better apprehend your glory in the redemption of your people. We ask these very simple things for our good, which is, in the end, for your glory. Amen. If you would,